Good to be with you this morning as we continue our series in Jonah. So turn with me, if you would, to Jonah. We're going to ease into Jonah chapter 2 this morning. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Jonah's prayer life, if you will, in the midst of the belly of the fish. So before we do that, though, let me pray for us and just remind you that this is God's Word, folks, and it's powerful. Okay, this isn't just maxims and little pithy sayings, this is the living and active Word of God that can cut to the deepest places of your heart and bring hope like you've never experienced before and bring you peace and truth like you've never tasted before. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm 37, taste and see that the Lord is good. So that's my prayer for us this morning is that we are tasting and we are seeing the beauties and the majesties and the glory and the goodness Jesus this morning. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. We do pray that you would help us, Holy Spirit. I, I pray very pointedly, come, come, Holy Spirit. We need you. Um, gosh, do we ever need you. We need you to open our eyes to our sin. We need to open, we need you to open our eyes to our own rebellion and desire to control our lives and our circumstances. We need you to open our eyes to the greater truth of your love for us that is the only antidote for the brokenness that's inside of all of us. So what I pray, would you awaken our hearts this morning to the truth of your word, to the truth of the good news that Jesus came to love and die for sinners like us. Uh, So Lord, help us this morning. Come Holy Spirit and make Jesus all the more bigger and more beautiful And that would you turn our affections to Jesus this morning, away from ourselves, and turn our hearts, our gazes to Jesus this morning, that we might taste and see that he indeed alone is good. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be looking at Jonah. Actually, we're going to look at verse 17 of chapter 1 and then jump ahead through Jonah 2. So let's read God's word together this morning. Jonah 1.17 and all of chapter 2. The Lord provided... A great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, by the way, I'm reading the NIV, the 84 version. Sorry, I didn't tell you this. But um, I really like how the NIV translation, the 1984 version of the NIV translates this psalm, if you will, of Jonah. So that's why I'm reading from the NIV 84 version this morning. From inside the fish, chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, he said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you, Lord, listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit or forsake the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah 
onto the dry land. Well, where have we been so far in this little book, this little prophecy by this guy named Jonah? Well, if you remember, Jonah was a prophet who God called up, right, to be a prophet and a minister among his own people, the Jews, Israel, God's covenant people. Jonah is autobiographical, right? Jonah wrote this book about himself, which is interesting that Jonah didn't write a a book about all of his successes, did he? But he wrote a book about his failures, if you will. So Jonah's autobiographical. He was Jewish. He was called by God to be a prophet to his own people. He had this privileged upbringing. He got to have these mentors like Elijah and Elisha. Can you imagine having those two guys as your mentors? He grew up in the school of prophets, if you will. He got to see God give grace to his own people, the Jews, who were so rebellious. He was a firsthand eyewitness to God's love and mercy to his, his people who didn't deserve God's grace. So Jonah saw some astounding things. He had an incredibly privileged upbringing, right? And so he's enjoying his time with his people, right? He's enjoying his role, his calling as a prophet. He's seeing God's grace on people. And then all of a sudden God says, Jonah, there's a people, the Ninevites, who I am concerned about. And I want you, I'm calling you to go and be a prophet to the Ninevites. And we see Jonah doing what? He, instead of embracing this call that God is giving him, Jonah flees, right, from the presence of the Lord. And we saw that in chapter 1, that Jonah goes down to Joppa. He just happens to find a ship going to Joppa. We know in God's providence that God leads him to Joppa. He goes and buys a, a ticket and tries to flee from the presence of the Lord by going to this place across the sea to Tarshish, right, to get away from the presence of the Lord. And so we encounter Jonah, this prophet who's running from the Lord, and we get this, this uh, picture of Jonah's prayer life from the inside of a fish, okay? That's what we're going to see today is this whole series is navigating a God-centered life. So I would say today we're going to see what it is of praying a God-centered life. Jonah, teach me how to pray. That's what Jonah's going to be doing, teaching us how to pray, okay? And so here we are. We're going to discover how a man who could not bring himself to pray, right? Because he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, finally got to a place where he begins to cry out to God for help, right? And how I pray this morning, my prayer has been this week, that God would begin to help us see how to foster an intimate prayer life with him as you move forward and navigating what it looks like to have a God-centered life with him. So we're going to look at Jonah's prayer life as he's sinking into the depths, if you will. So look at Jonah one seventeen. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. We know as a kid, as, as you probably learned the story of Jonah, what did you think about when you heard the story of Jonah? Think about Sunday school. What was the first thing you did? You colored a whale, right? <laughs> or you cut out a whale. Or maybe it was a flannel graph. You remember flannel graphs growing up? It was a flannel graph of a big whale, right, on the board. Well, that's what I learned as a story as a kid. I pictured God's extraordinary sea creature, this whale, coming and kind of jumping out of the water. And as Jonah is falling off, or that he's thrown off, mind you, the boat by these sailors, that the whale kind of jumps up and grabs him like a bass does to a fly, you know, and takes him down. What well, was it quite like that? It's interesting. Did you know that there is a guy named James Bartley who lived in the 19th century who was swallowed by a whale? True story. James Bartley, Irish uh, seaman, sailor. 
in the story according, and this is, uh, just let me read you this article, a little brief part of it. The story about James Bartley, it's fascinating. He was a late 19th century legend who was swallowed whole by a sperm whale. The story as reported is that during a whaling expedition off the Falkland Islands, Bartley's boat was attacked by the whale, and he landed inside of the whale's mouth. You might think, this is ridiculous. There's no way this could happen. It did. He survived the ordeal and was carved out of the stomach by his peers when they, not knowing he was inside, caught and began skinning the whale because of the hot weather, uh, which would have caused the, the carcass to rot. It was said that Bartley was in the whale for up to 15 hours and that his skin had become, started to become bleached by the gastric juices of the whale and that he was partially blinded for the rest of his life. He, however, supposed to have, he was like, likely, or he was, however, supposed to have returned to work within three weeks. He died around 11 years later, and in his tombstone in Ireland, you can go there and see it to this day, it says, James Bartley, a modern-day Jonah. Isn't that interesting? So Jonah's autobiographical. He wrote about this, and he wasn't writing it as an allegory. You know what an allegory is? An allegory is a story, a fairy tale that points to a certain truth, a moral truth, a religious truth. This was an autobiography. Jonah's writing about his experience, about being swallowed by this whale. And, it, you know, I've always thought as Jonah was pitched off the side of the ship, this whale jumped up and kind of grabbed him from midair, right, and, and then began to take him down. But it, it actually, if you read the text, I don't think it actually happened to that way. God allowed Jonah to go to the bottom before he sent the fish, before he sent the whale. What does it say in uh, chapter 2, verse 6? When, as Jonah says, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. What is that saying to us? That clearly Jonah was no longer above the water. You know, if Jonah would have stayed on the surface, maybe he could have grabbed a piece of flotsam or jetsam, whatever it is, you know, to, to float onto, to save himself. But God took Jonah down to the bottom where he had no way out, where his strength was gone and he was absolutely helpless. Then God sent the fish right. And that just makes me think of this. Have you ever been in a situation where you found yourself completely overwhelmed? Recently? <laughs> Daily? <laughs> you find yourself completely overwhelmed, right? With what life brings to you. If you have small children, you know what that's like. You feel completely overwhelmed or work. Maybe it's a disease. It's something going on with friends or family. And you feel completely overwhelmed. And you're almost like Jonah. You just feel like you're trying to keep yourself afloat, right, in life. Afloat. In existence, and these waves and breakers seem to keep crashing over you. Was this pounding that Jonah was receiving really necessary? Well, I think it was for Jonah. These waves and breakers that were pouring over Jonah as he was grasping to fight for breath before he's captured by this whale, it was for Jonah because resentment, and you see that so clearly, and we'll see that towards the end of Jonah as well, this huge struggle that Jonah had with resentment. He had resentment. He struggled with resentment towards God. And this resentment that Jonah had built up like this hard crust around Jonah's heart, right? And it took extraordinary intervention. It took extraordinary grace, right, for God to begin to break through this hard crust, this resistance that Jonah had to the Lord in his heart. Because God had an incredible future in store for Jonah, didn't he? And none of this would have happened if it hadn't have been for the raging storm and the rescuing fish. 
You see, God had to bring Jonah to a place where he finally cried out for help. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about this. He says, The deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish. The deeper work of God took place in Jonah's life not in the belly of the fish, but that deeper work took place in Jonah's heart. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. And so Jonah's going to teach us three things about prayer this morning. Three things. If you want, you're taking notes, you can write this down. Three quick things, three words, three singular words. Awakening, believing, and repenting. Awakening, believing, and repenting. And so awakening. Here's where we're going to begin to see Jonah, where he begins to own who he really is. I love some of the 12 steps that maybe you've heard from these alcoholics, uh, you know, re- recovery support groups like Alcoholics Anonymous. They have these 12 steps, right? And you see the first two steps, and the first step is this, is that you've come to a place where you've realized that whatever struggle you have is overpowering. You're helpless, right? And it's, your life has become unmanageable. And then the second step is, is that you turn to God. You turn to a higher power, which we know is the Lord Jesus. You turn to God to finally begin to realize that you need help, and he's the one who's going to help you, right? Those are summation, roughly, of the two steps of AA. In a sense, I think that's what's happening here with Jonah. He's working the steps, <laughs> the 12 steps, the first two. He's beginning to own who he really is. What does he say in verse 3 of chapter 2? God, you hurled me into the deep, and all of your waves and breakers are sweeping over me. All of a sudden, by God's grace, Jonah is being awakened to who he is. And he's becoming aware of the fact that God is working into his life in a new way. You know, Jonah was asleep on the boat. We saw that in chapter 1. He's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. It's like Jonah's conscience is somewhat gone to sleep, right? And so he goes to the boat. He goes down to the bottom of of the boat and begins to fall asleep. And that's a symptom of, I think, something deeper going on in Jonah's heart, isn't it? I think a laziness had begun to creep in into Jonah's inner life with God. And once, you know, think about Jonah. He had walked with God. He was this privileged prophet who saw God work in amazing ways with his own people, right? He had enjoyed this intimacy with the Lord. He had been in God's word. He had been used by God. There had been fruit to to Jonah's ministry with his own people, Israel, right? He received words from the Lord directly to speak to his people. I mean, that's a privilege that none of us have gotten to experience to hear directly from the Lord. God speaking to you and saying, listen, Jonah, this is what you need to know. That's a very distinct privilege that Jonah had. He had been God's man, right? But something had begun to go awry in Jonah's heart. And don't we see that with us sometimes? That, that spiritual decline in our lives happens so slowly, right? It's almost like death by a thousand cuts, right? Oh, it's not a big deal, a little paper cut, but over time, that eventually will kill you, Right? And so that spiritual decline seems to happen so slowly that you hardly even notice it. That worship becomes remote in your life. Prayer becomes repetitive, right? You just lose interest in even praying at all. Hearing the Word of God becomes routine. You come Sunday in and Sunday out, and it just seems routine. Your Christian life seems to run almost like as if it's on automatic pilot. And so you start to check out spiritually. And that's what we see with Jonah in his autobiography. It's so hard to say autobiography. I almost want to say autobiography. Jonah has checked out spiritually. He's checked out. 
But like we've seen when we began a few weeks ago, Jonah is being pursued by this relentless love of God. Now think about Jonah for a minute. He's checked out, and God has sent this raging storm and this rescuing fish to awaken Jonah once again to his love for him. Now let's take a minute and kind of diagnose Jonah's resentment here. Why was Jonah resentful? I think there's four ways that I see Jonah's resentment creeps into his life. The first way we see Jonah is resentful, or we even begin to see this resentment coming, bubbling forth in his, his life, is when God says, go. God just gives Jonah a simple command. Jonah, go to the Ninevites. Go. Leave the familiar, Jonah. Leave the incubator, if you will. Leave your community, Jonah, and go. That would kind of be like you saying, God saying, go. And then secondly, go preach to the Ninevites, Jonah. How could we make that, how could we feel that tension that Jonah felt? It would be like you saying, yeah, I love Botetourt County. It's comfortable. Gosh, look at the view. It's beautiful. I love fall here. This is a great community. I've grown up here. This is my church. I'm comfortable, right? I'm secure. And then God impresses upon your heart and, and you feel this external call as others say, yes, this is what you need to do. God says, listen, friend, I want you to move to Syria next week. And you're going to have a ministry among ISIS. And we're leaving behind everything that you hold precious. And you're going to Syria next week. You begin to feel the tension a little bit? <laughs> uh-uh, wait a minute, God. Now, I'll go to Latin America. I'll go to Mexico for you. No, Syria. You mean ISIS, Lord? Yeah. You're telling me I need to go to my enemies? Yeah. That's what he did with Jonah. Do you know the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were Israel's arch enemies had done horrific things to Israel and their children. And God's saying, Jonah, go to your enemies. Go to your enemies. Go, preach to the Ninevites. And, and then Jonah realizes, okay, what did Jonah experience? He had been a firsthand witness to God's grace to a people who didn't deserve grace, his own people, himself, right? Israel had rebelled and rebelled, and God said, I'm not going to wipe their name off. I'll remember their name. I'm going to keep my covenant promises with them. I'll extend my covenant of grace to them, and I'm going to save them and rescue them. And Jonah's prophecy about Israel's land being restored comes true. Jonah is a firsthand witness of God's mercy to his own people. And he knows, he knows that God is a merciful God, and that if he goes and preaches God's living word to them, the Ninevites will be saved. They'll be converted and come to know the Lord. Jonah knows that God is going to cut his enemies slack. And so God says, go, Jonah, preach to your enemies. And yes, I am going to rescue your enemies if you go and preach the word to them. And then the fourth thing is that God had interrupted Jonah's new plan for life in Tarshish. You see, Jonah was trying to orchestrate a way to get away from the Lord and God had given him some friendly providences that Jonah thought, oh, well, gosh, I'm going to go ship shopping. I'm going to go down to, Tar- to uh, Joppa. I'm going to find a boat, and I'm going to go to Tarshish. And the Lord allowed that to happen. And we saw this last week. Don't confuse providences that happen in your life as if they're good things when you know you're running from the Lord. And, but yet Jonah allowed, uh, the Lord allowed Jonah to take a boat to Tarshish, right? And so his plan is a new life away from the Lord in Tarshish guess what? God relentlessly pursues with his love. And he interrupts 
Jonah's plan of new life in Tarshish, right? And so we see that Jonah's got these reasons to feel resentful. Not good reasons, but yet this is the reasons that Jonah feels resentful. And I can almost ask, he's, I can almost see himself as the storm's raging. He's trying to sleep. God, why did this happen to me? The dice always seem to be loaded against me, Lord. Nobody cares about me. I hate my life. I might as well go eat worms, right? I mean, that's what Jonah's kind of thinking as he's at the bottom of the boat trying to sleep. But that's not Jonah's reaction, right? If you look back on what happened, Jonah saw and even proclaims this, and that's what he writes in chapter 2 in this psalm. He's realizing that as he looks back on all that's happened, Jonah saw that God was working through these painful providences in his life. What does he say in verse 3 of chapter 2? God, you hurled me. You, Lord, hurled me into the deep, and your waves have swept over me. You know, I think some of us, some people, they see their lives as a series of events, right, of these random series of events that are strung together by luck. You feel like your life just kind of rides on luck, right? Others see their lives as a series of events that maybe are controlled by other people and they feel like they're victims. They have this victim mentality that I'm going to blame everything, everything on everybody else. Maybe others begin to feel like, well, hey, I feel like my life's in control. I've pretty much got a good handle on my life. And so if things go well, I feel like a hero, right? If things don't go well, I don't feel like a hero. I feel like a failure. Jonah was making none of these choices. Jonah knew that God was making a miraculous intervention in his life. He was recognizing that these events, these waves and breakers that were coming over him, even being rescued by a fish, he realizes that these painful events in his life were the first sign of a genuine change in his life. Sometimes these painful providences come our way and you begin to see by His grace that these aren't meant to harm you, but they're really meant for your good. And you recognize by the power and the grace, by sheer grace of the Holy Spirit, wow, Lord, you're at work in my life. Thank you for not abandoning me. Thank you for sending these. We sang that song today, Blessed be your name, O Lord, right? That's what the theme of that psalm is, that Lord, blessed be your name, that things come into my life and you're using those things for your good and ultimately for my joy. So Jonah says, your waves and your breakers sweep over me. He's not complaining. Jonah's confessing here as a man does when he comes before God without an excuse because Jonah knew that he was in the water because of his own sin and rebellion against God. See, Jonah had suppressed his guilt for a long time in the water, but in the water he began to see his sin so clearly and he knew that he was under the judgment of God. So I want to do this. I want to ask you a question. You want to know how to discern what's happening in your life right now? Here's a question I want to give you. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not, listen and hear this. It's what I call an x-ray question. Okay, here's the question. Here's one way to discern what's happening in your life right now. Ask yourself this question. Do you feel that God owes you something better than what you already have? Do you feel that God owes you something better than what you already have. And I'm not talking about stuff. Well, yeah, I really not, I deserve a better car. I deserve a better job. Or I deserve a better house. I'm not talking about stuff per se. I'm talking about circumstances. Do you feel that God owes you something better than you already have? Maybe that's uh, an unfulfilled hope that you have, an unfulfilled expectation. Do you ever look over your life and wish that things would have been different? I mean, I think we all do that, don't we? 
right? Maybe you wish you had received different gifts as a person. You know, I wish I was better, a better musician. Golly, I wish I was better at math. Or golly, I wish I was better at fill in the blank, right? Maybe you wish you'd received different opportunities or given different experiences. I'll tell you what, one thing I struggle with is called ministry envy. You have to be a pastor to get this, but I think you can get this. It's ministry envy, pastor envy. You get together with other pastors and you think, now that guy's a pastor. He's a real pastor. He gets it. I wish I was more like him. Or you would go to another church, you know, as a pastor, we're the worst when we go to other churches. Oh, I love how they have their stage. Oh, I wish we had this. Or, gee, I wish we had this music. Or, oh, I wish we had this programmer. It's ministry envy. It's pastor envy. Maybe you have lawyer envy or doctor envy or, I don't know, housewife envy or mother envy or dad envy. We all have envy, right? We struggle. We wish that things were different. But see, if you slide into this thinking that God owes you something better than what you've already received, friends, you are making a huge mistake. Huge, huge mistake. You see, Jonah was owning his sinfulness here. Owning your sinfulness means getting beyond the idea that you deserve something better from God. Okay? Owning your sinfulness means that you're getting beyond the idea that you deserve something better from God. What does Romans 6 say? See, God doesn't owe you a full and satisfying life. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. What are wages? You know, wages are something that you receive. You receive a paycheck, right? You receive wages for work that you have, you've done, right? And it's due payment for the work that you've done. By, by nature, every single one of you here, including your pastor, is a huge sinner. Every single one of us today. Huge sinner. By nature, I am a sinner. By practice, I am a sinner. By thought life, I am a sinner. What I am owed, what you are owed, hear this, folks. Maybe this is for the first time the best news you've ever heard. What you are owed is not an abundant life. What you are owed naturally is eternal death. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Anything else in this life that comes to me that's good is sheer mercy. Anything, look at me, anything that comes to you in life that's good, beloved, hear this, it's sheer mercy. It's sheer grace. You don't deserve anything good in God's economy because of your brokenness, because of your sin, because of your rebellion. Jonah saw this. And he owned it right then and there in the waters. The waves were beating over him as the seaweed was wrapped around his head. He's confessing, God, your waves, I deserve these. I deserve your judgment. I deserve to be under your judgment, Lord. And so Jonah's prayer life is awakened all of a sudden when he begins to see his true position before the Lord. God owes me nothing. That's where prayer begins. You don't have to get yourself in fit and in shape so that you can start praying. You know how you pray? You fall on the, your face before the Lord and say, God, you owe me nothing, but you give me everything because of your grace. God owes us nothing. And that's our true position before the Lord. And that's awakening. Jonah was awakened to his true position before the Lord. He began to own who he really was, right? Second thing we see that stimulates this prayer life is, is believing, right? We saw awakening. Second thing is believing. We fight, we fight for faith in Christ. We have to fight for it. 
Notice what Jonah prays after he comes to terms with the mess in his life. Verse two, or chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. We read that in, uh, this morning for the call to worship. Asaph, Psalm 73, very similar language, right? That, Lord, I saw how the, the, the folks around me, the wicked, were doing, they were doing really well, and I became envious, I became bittered. And when I got into your presence, I realized I was like a brute beast, a brute animal before you. Jonah says, I've been banished towards your sight, but yet I look again to your temple. God awakens you. God awakens you. And the first danger that you're going to face is God awakens you is your temptation to despair. Because, beloved, when you begin to see and feel the weight of your sin and the consequences, perhaps, that have happened in your life because of your sin, it's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? It's so easy to lose track and get discouraged. And maybe some of you guys, maybe you have come to a place where you feel so bad about your sin, you feel so desperate about the path of your life. Prayer seems utterly impossible, right? God seems so far, you, far from you. It seems like you feel like God's hand is against you. Don't give up. Prayer is given birth when the awakened person believes and turns to the Lord Jesus. So before we look at Jonah's struggle to believe, we need to get a clear picture of what the battle was that was going on inside of Jonah. Was it the fish? Was this battle, where did it take place? Was it in the fish or was it in the water? Well, Scripture tells us what Jonah prayed from the inside of the fish. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 2. But this prayer that's recorded is in the past tense, right? As we read that prayer this morning in Jonah 2, it's in the past tense. So it's indicating, what's that telling us? that Jonah was thanking God for his deliverance inside of the fish. He was looking at his experience on the back, experience back in the water. Because it was in the water that Jonah said, I have been banished from your sight. It was in the water that Jonah said, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. And so, the, you know, this is happening as the seaweed's wrapped around his head and he's sinking to the roots of the mountains, verse 4 and 5. And it was out of the depths of this watery hell that he cried to help, cried out to God for help. So this seems like a small point, but I think this point is important. Here's why. When Jonah was in the water, he felt sure that he was going to die, right? When he was in the fish, he felt sure that he was going to live. So get this. The belly of the fish was not a place of trauma for Jonah. The belly of the fish was a place of deliverance for Jonah. The belly of the fish wasn't a place of trauma. The belly of the fish was a place of deliverance for Jonah. And there are going to be times in your life when you want to pray, but you feel so far from the Lord. You, you feel so distant from, distant from the God that it seems impossible. And here's what your flesh is going to be telling you. There's no use to pray. You've screwed up too bad. The consequences are too great because of your sin. Don't pray. The enemy is going to tell you you've gone too far. It's no use to pray. He's not listening to you anymore. He's no longer interested in you anymore. You're too sinful. You're too broken. But faith defies the flesh. Faith in the Lord defies the enemy. It contradicts Satan's lies. Satan would love to lie to you again and again. He is the father of lies. That's what Scripture tells us. He's the father of lies and tries to get you to buy into the lie that God doesn't love you. He doesn't care for you. That his grace, that you can out his grace for you. See, Jonah didn't find it easy to trust God when he was struggling in the water, right? His faith came at a great struggle between his own feelings of failure and yet the gracious promises of God. And that's where faith, that's the battleground of faith, folks, is what your flesh, you know, that 
classically, church historians told us that we have three enemies. The Christian has three enemies. The flesh, the world, and the devil. And Satan himself knows how to work in concert between your flesh and the culture and the world to make you doubt and despair and be filled with shame again and again. And that's the battleground of faith that again and again we feel the tension of our failures. And yet, by faith, we are clinging and reaching towards the gracious promises of God again and again. You know, sometimes people speak about faith like it's this easy, small little step, you know. Hey, man, just believe and put your trust in Jesus. You ever, somebody ever tell you that? You just want to smack them across the face? Oh, just believe. Just believe. It's so easy. And put your trust in Jesus. It's true, but when you're like Jonah and you're, the waves and breakers are crashing over you, don't tell me that. <laughs> Suffer with me. Bear my burden. Pray for me. Weep with me. Sit with me. And point me to the promises of God. Read Scripture to me. Read the promises to me. Faith has enemies to overcome, and it grapples like a wrestler. Faith is like wrestling. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6. It's like spiritual wrestling where you're grappling with the liar, the great enemy of your soul, wrestling with him. And so don't be surprised if that struggle seems to feel like a fight, the fight of your life, if you will. You see, faith overcomes despair when we fix our eyes on the grace of God versus our own failure, right? And that's what Jonah was doing when he said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. That reminds me of Psalm 85. If you read that psalm, the whole theme of that psalm is this, God Revive me again. That's a precious word. Again. That's a word of grace. Again. Revive me again, O Lord. And so when Jonah looked at himself, he despaired because he knew he deserved to be banished from God's love and presence. Yet by faith, he dared to believe that he could hope in God and that he could look away from himself, that he couldn't fix his own failures, but fixing his eyes on God and his grace, he would be delivered. And I think many folks believe that salvation, and sadly I think this is preached in many churches, that salvation is basically that you have to get your act together enough, right? You've got to go through some moral efforts, some good works. You've got to get a little family values mixed in, a little bit of Ten Commandments, and then believe a little bit in Jesus. And if you get all that stuff together, right, then, then your act is enough together where God might accept you. But you see, we know, and God's Word tells us that God saves us not because of ourselves, and so he sent this fish because Jonah had no other hope, right? See, Jonah didn't need belief. Jonah needed deliverance. He needed a savior. Jonah couldn't exercise self-rescue, could he? You see, by grace, God awakens us to our own sin. That's, that's grace. Don't think, oh gosh, that's the last thing I want to see. No, you do. By grace, by his Holy Spirit, he awakens you to your own sin. And then... By grace, he turns your heart from doubt to belief, and you fight for faith as you run to the Lord Jesus. And then the third thing we see here is repenting. So we saw awakening. We saw believing, fighting for faith. Thirdly, we see repenting, releasing the idols and laying hold of his grace. I love, and this is the reason I chose the NIV translation. I love how the NIV translates verse 8. He says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You see, repentance 
is the third thing that gives birth to prayer. But I think repentance is often misunderstood by the church. I think some folks think repentance is this process, kind of like the old middle-aged monks. You know, you take a, a cat of nine tails and you walk around beating yourself, right? It's like in the, what was it, the Monty Python, the Holy Grail. They're walking around hitting themselves, you know, on the forehead. That's not repentance. It's not beating yourselves up enough. If I, if I hit myself enough times, I'll somehow purify myself enough that God might approve of me and accept me. We confuse repentance with penance. Beating yourself up is penance. Repentance is this. You know, Jesus said, do you remember when Jesus said this? He said that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Why would there be joy in heaven over people who are beating up on themselves? There wouldn't be, right? So what does repentance mean? It doesn't mean self-deliverance. It means an other, other deliverance. Repentance means change. Change in what you think, change in what you desire, change in what you do and you say, but it's not brought upon by your actions. Repentance is the evidence of authentic faith. And you need to get this. See, Jonah repented inside of the fish. He felt the anguish of his sin by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals that to him. Then he realizes the promises of God. He turns from the anguish of his sin away to the promises of God. He repented inside of the fish. He felt this banishment in the sight of God, and he struggled against despair. But as he put his hope in the Lord, he put his hope not in himself or not in his actions, but his hope in the promises of God. God sent the fish to save him. And this fish gives us a wonderful picture of what it means to be in Christ. You see, when Jonah was in the water, he felt like he was sure that he was going to die, right? But once he was inside of the fish, he knew he would live. Inside of the fish, Jonah knew that he was safe, right? God had delivered him, and it was there that he got down to the serious business of repenting, of turning from himself and turning back to the promises of God, to God's grace. So here we have the man who had set out for Tarshish, who had this dream of the self-determined life, right? This idol that was causing him to miss what God was ready to freely give him. He was clinging to that. And yet, by God's grace, he remembers the promises of God. And God, by his grace, moves him from himself back to the Lord himself. Do you know how they would catch monkeys in the jungle? You might be thinking, where is he going with this? He's got a point. They still do this today, as a matter of fact. You know, it was a lot harder for them to send out a hunting party and just look for monkeys. And, you know, if you get a shot, great. But if not, you come home hungry. They would take a drill, hand drill or a power drill, and they would take a pretty large boar bit. They would go to an area where they had seen a relatively large population of monkeys. They would simply go to the base of one of the trees, drill a hole into that tree. Somebody would wad up a thing of tinfoil, throw it in the hole, and they would walk away. Come back a few hours later, nine times out of ten, guess what? There's a monkey at the base of the tree with his arm in the hole. Here's the principle. I guess is it physics or mechanics. You know, you take a hole, right, and you stick your hand in there, and you, you can pull it out pretty easily. But as soon as you ball your hand up into a fist, the surface area becomes greater than the width of the hole, right? And so that monkey would go in and grab that tinfoil and realize that his hand was stuck in the hole. But you've got to know about monkeys and their desires. They love shiny objects, and they will not let go of that shiny piece of tinfoil, even if it costs them their lives. I think that's what Jonah was saying in those who cling to worthless idols. Forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah had find, found this idol that he had cherished. 
cherished, right? And it trapped him. And by letting go of that idol, he was free, free to receive what God had in store for him. Jonah released this idol of the self-governed life and made a new pledge of obedience to God. Lord, what I've vowed, verse 9, I will make good. You see, God doesn't ask us to change so that we can come to Christ. Friends, hear this. God's not asking you to change first so that you can come to Jesus. He invites you first to himself in order that you can change. He invites you to himself and then gives you the power of transformation through the Holy Spirit, through his work on the cross. See, repentance is a gift from the Lord. It's not something that you drum up. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps of repentance and get down and be serious about my business with God. You can't do that. Repentance even is a gift. Faith is even a gift. And he gives you that freely. Paul says in Romans, God's kindness draws us to repentance. Not judgment, not the law. God's grace, it's his kindness, it's his promises, it's the gospel that draws us to repentance. God's grace even makes repentance possible. So what are those idols that God needs to smash in your life? What are those trees that you're like a monkey? I mean, seriously, I know it sounds dumb, but it's true. If you really see yourself in the idols, you're like a little monkey. I got my tinfoil. <laughs> and it's killing you. And it's killing you, beloved. By God's grace, Lord, help me loose those idols. Help me let go of the shiny tinfoil that's killing me. What are the idols that God needs to smash in your hands so that you can receive what he has for you? Is your heart stubborn? Yeah. He can change it. God, look at Jonah. You're not too far gone, friends. You're not too far gone. Look at Jonah and what God did in his life. You know, God's teaching methods are perfect, aren't they? Jonah is such a picture, I think, of Peter. You know the apostle Peter, the Peter, the boneheaded apostle, disciple, right? Jonah was brought back into the presence of the Lord when he had slipped such a long way from the Lord. And it makes me think of Peter. You know, think about this. I think the New Testament gives us great illustrations of what I like to call the Jonah principle, right? Think about Peter. He was brought back to Jesus at the very point of his departure from the Lord where he slid such a long way. Remember after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter was drawn to the burning coals of the fire, and that's reminiscent of the earlier fire that had cost him his loyalty to Jesus, right? Three times Peter's heart was broken by the question, did you know Jesus? Oh, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. And then Jesus comes back to him after the resurrection and says, do you love him? See, it's the same issue. Jonah, the way down for Jonah was quick. It was rapid. Peter fled from Christ. He fled from his word and fled from his presence. But yet Peter was arrested by God's kind providence. And like Jonah, Peter was brought back to Christ's word. He remembered the word of the Lord that was spoken just like Jonah. And like Jonah, Peter wept out loud. He wept bitterly, and he wept his way back into the presence of the Lord. You know, the story of Jonah finds a lot of echoes in the pages of Scripture, doesn't it? But my prayer, friends, is that it finds echoes in your own heart, too. So here's your priorities this morning, just to return to God's Word. Return back to God's presence. Pray the prayer of Psalm 85. God, revive me again, O Lord. Revive me again. 
Pray for restoration. Revive me again, O Lord. I want to close with this quote by C.S. Lewis. Uh, You know, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, it comes from the book, The Horse and His Boy. And Aslan is speaking and he says this. He says, "It It is I, Aslan, who have wounded you. It's I who have wounded you. And I am the only lion who has met you in all of your journeyings. It is I who have wounded you. And I am the only lion who will meet you in all of your journeyings. Have you trusted the Lord Jesus? Have you trusted Aslan, the great lion, who Lewis points to as Christ? Because in all of your journeyings, even when you're trying to run from the Lord, he is still with you. You cannot outflee the Lord in his presence. What providences is he bringing into your life to once again awaken you? Don't resist those. Don't cling to your little balls of tinfoil, but come to the Lord Jesus and receive his grace and his mercy for you this morning. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Lord, this was a lot to cover today. But Lord, thank you for the truth of your word that Lord points to the truth that God, um, all of the idols that we cling to, and I think um, Calvin was right when he said that the human heart is like a ceaseless factory of idols. It is. Lord, forgive us for the idols that we cling to like tinfoil, thinking that they're treasures. And a lot of times, those idols are are so hard to find and see. They're not the new boat or the new car. A lot of times, it's more sinister than that. It's just that I want to be in control of my life. I want my life to go a certain way. I really want security and comfort, and I cherish security and comfort more than I cherish Jesus. Or I cherish my agenda more than I cherish what God is calling me to do. So Lord, I pray, would you, by your grace, awaken our hearts to the idol-making factories that they are. Awaken our heart to our sin. And Lord, as we see our sin, I pray that we would only take one quick look at our sins but in, and then take ten long gazes at the look at the cross of Jesus. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Lord, help us to turn to you where we find life. Lord, we love you. And I pray that if there be anyone here today who hasn't trusted the Lord Jesus for their, for their life, that they haven't submitted themselves, themselves to you, that they would today. Today is the day of salvation, that they would come to the Lord Jesus. Would they cast their sin in themselves upon you now and submit to you. So I pray that now. Lord, we love you and we honor you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus.